Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. So we're picking up the discussion from last time with Anna Rower on social justice, and we had to cut it off a little bit early, even though we still had a lot to talk about on the subject of social justice. So I just wanted to hone in a little bit more this time on the context of labor conditions in foreign countries at the base of global supply chains, and then talk about some of the context there, and then also the potential for the future in terms of technology and things like that. So welcome back to the show, Anna. Thanks, Alice. All right. So before I cut you off last time, you were talking about the need for Christians to be in the workplace and also in positions of power to be having that positive influence on the moral side of economies and politics and governments and all those kind of things. The idea being, and I very much agree with you, that if we have people in positions of power that have convictions and high moral standards, that it will be better for everyone in the global economy and that the world as a whole will be benefited from that. So just following on from that context, what do you think that the Bible has to say about money and our role in the economy? I think it's important to point out that the Bible has a lot to say about our financial lives. Faith is inseparable from every aspect of life, including economics. There's more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about money. And just to give you a comparison, there's only about 500 that talk about prayer. So I think it's pretty obvious that money is something that Jesus cares about and therefore is something that we as Christians should care about. You know, there's a number of verses that talk about exploiting the poor and how that's an abomination to the Lord. But just overall to say, God wants it all, including our money. So when I think about my money and the resources that God has given me, I try really hard to think about them as his. Everything that I have belongs to him. And so that also influences how I think about how I want to spend my money. So as Christians, I think we are called to be intentional about how we live our lives. We're called to be intentional about the words that we say and the things that we choose to consume, how we spend our money. That looks different for different people. God gives different people a different amount of resources to be stewards of. But it's become increasingly important to me to be intentional about where I'm spending my money. And so for me specifically, based on my knowledge of the fashion industry, I am trying to figure out what does it look like for me to be a Christian, for me to know all of the things that I know about the fashion industry, and then for me to be a consumer of fashion. So that's been a journey. The good news is there's a lot of options for ethically made products. You know, there's a number of companies that are certified fair trade. There's B corporations that are like, they don't just look at the bottom line. They're looking at the triple bottom line of people, planet and profit. So I think that there's a lot of options. Can you just re reiterate uh, that triple bottom line? Yeah. So it's not just looking at the financial aspect of a company, but also looking at 
people and planet. So what are the social and environmental implications of a company operating? Patagonia is an example of a certified B Corporation, and they have awesome products. There's a, another B Corporation, Oliberte, and they have the world's first fair trade certified footwear factory. It's in Ethiopia. I just ordered a pair of boots from them last month, and I'm obsessed. <laughs> but I think the difficult part is that it requires time to do the research. So it's super easy to just go to a Target or go to a Walmart and get everything you need from one shop, but it requires time and energy and an effort to actually do the research to figure out like, what are the companies that I feel comfortable supporting? The bad news is there are a lot of companies that in my opinion are not worth supporting. There are the majority of companies, I'm speaking specifically on the fashion side, but the majority of companies do not have transparent supply chains. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's exploitation happening, but it doesn't mean that there's not. The good news is that we have a lot of information that's available to us now. There's a number of different tools and resources for consumers that are interested in thinking about the products that they're buying and the brands that they're supporting. So there's a couple apps where you can like scan a barcode and it'll bring up ratings of that product based on different factors. So whether it's the environment or labor rights, there's different consumer platforms that again have different scanning technologies where you can learn about brands and they're graded on different aspects of operations. There's a downloadable plugin for your internet browsing. So there's a lot of resources that are available. It's just a matter of doing the research to really figure that out. There's also, um, I'm part of an ethical, I think it's called the Ethical Writers Network. So it's basically a lot of bloggers, small business owners, people who are interested or involved in the ethical fashion, mostly fashion. So for people that are on social media, there's a lot of information that you can learn just from other people who have already done the research. So I know a number of people who have their own websites where they will list 50 brands that they've done extensive research on and they'll give a description and they'll let you know, this is why I'm comfortable with this brand. This is why I'm not comfortable with this brand. And that's been a really great resource for me. I know not everyone's on Instagram, but I love to follow a lot of ethical fashion companies on Instagram. And that's a really great way for me to kind of see what products are out there and, and know what I like. I think maybe historically, you know, maybe 10 years ago, when people thought about ethical fashion, they thought about hemp clothing and like super ugly, non-fashionable, ugly clothes. And like, that was your only option. The great news is that there's tons of, for people who love fashion, there's a ton of options that are available that are great. That's one thing that I would say I'm, I'm really trying to do more of is identify the companies that I know are doing ethical manufacturing and to put my money there. Now, I will say that you're going to pay more money almost always when you're buying something that's ethically made. So for me, in just the reality of like trying to balance, okay, this is my budget and I'm paying off student loans and I have all of these other financial obligations. So what that has looked like for me is I grew up thrifting. I love doing that. 
And so that's something that like has continued to be part of my lifestyle. So I buy a lot of secondhand things. And then what I've been doing is if I find a piece or a pair of shoes or something that I love that's ethically made and more expensive, I can make that work because I'm not spending that much money on every single piece that I'm purchasing, if that makes sense. Yeah. There is a phone company in the UK. They sell certified conflict-free mineral phones, which is amazing. If I lived in the UK, I would definitely buy one. Exploitation and slavery are not specific to the garment industry. You can find labor exploitation in almost every industry. It's pretty much inevitable. Chocolate, coffee, flowers, all of it. And that can be a little bit overwhelming to think about. Literally everything that I could potentially purchase has touched some sort of unethical manufacturing process. Without belittling the situation, which I very much appreciate. Let's say learning about various conspiracy theories. Once you start going Mm -hmm. down the rabbit hole, you start to get paranoid about everything. And my question is, at what point do you set a limit to yourself? Because I suppose you could go down every rabbit hole and come up saying like, I'm not comfortable with any global supply chain of any company. I can't buy anything. Where do you draw the line? Yeah. Oh, that's a really great question. I can't answer that for anyone but myself. So I think that that's something that if someone who's listening to this is interested and wants to learn more, they're going to have to determine how much they want to know and what they want to do with that information. Absolutely. You could go down every rabbit trail and then decide that you're never going to buy anything again. I know some people that are living a zero waste lifestyle because that for them is super important. And so they've completely changed everything about their life to be able to live a zero waste lifestyle. There's other people who have committed to only buying things locally that are locally sourced because that's the decision that they've made that that makes them feel good. I'm still kind of figuring out what that looks like for me. There's times where I go to a store that I don't feel great about and I buy something because I need it or I don't feel like driving to another store, or I don't feel like paying more money for it. So I think that that's going to be a journey for anyone who wants to learn more about how things are made and what that means for them in terms of their faith and how they spend their money. You know, I have to be conscious of of the fact, sometimes I get really frustrated when I talk to people, whether it's family or friends about this. I'm obviously super passionate about it. Not sure if you could tell. Uh, but sometimes I get frustrated because I'm like, why don't you care about this? Why doesn't this make you super upset? And I I have to remember that I've had my own journey when I know what I know and not a lot of people have lived my experience. And so the way that I see things and the decisions that I make because of that are going to be different than someone else. But I would definitely encourage people to start somewhere. Pick something, you know, it doesn't have to be fashion, it could be chocolate, you know, go learn about what does it mean to buy fair trade chocolate instead of just buying Nestle chocolate? What does it look like to decide to buy fair trade coffee instead of just normal coffee, you know, so it could be like pick a specific product and just do a little bit of research on it. But I would encourage people to at least start somewhere. I definitely, I don't think that this is something that only applies to me because I'm passionate about it. I truly believe that as Christians who love the Lord, we're called to be intentional in how we live our life. And that includes how we spend our money. That can be applied to anything. But because we're consumers, because we do purchase things on a daily basis, 
it's good to know, like, what is the impact of that purchase, not only on my own life, but on the lives of the people who are making those products. For me, the fact that we have so much information available to us that we can Google whatever we want to learn and, and have that information available at our fingertips, I don't think that we can continue to play the ignorant card. I mean, we can, and a lot of people do because it's a lot more comfortable than to expose ourselves to things that are going to potentially change the way that we live our lives. That's uncomfortable. People don't like change. People don't like to be inconvenienced. And it's definitely not the most convenient thing to have to do more research and really think about, do I want to buy this product? Do I want to support this company? Let me Mm -hmm. shift the direction a little bit to ask you, in terms of your expertise in global supply chains and the fashion industry, what are some existing business practices that you think are the top injustices or things that is easy for people to see like, oh, okay, like this is something really bad going on and I want to either help to change that or that's something that I don't want to be supporting as a consumer? Yeah. So I think for me, the biggest grievances that I have in the global economy are the fact that slavery and exploitation still exist. There are more slaves today than at any other point in history. And a lot of those people are incorporated into global supply chains. And I think there's a fine line between slavery and forced labor. So you have all kinds of different scenarios uh, all across the spectrum. So, you know, one example I can give you is of migrant workers who will travel to another country in search of an economic opportunity and they'll use a people smuggler to get there. And so when they end up getting to wherever their destination is, it is not uncommon for their employer to confiscate their documents. And so they've confiscated their documents and essentially those workers are now forced to stay employed, often are not getting paid, and they're forced to work off whatever debt they incurred with the people smugglers. So that's a very real way in which modern day slavery is happening. Yeah, I can just attest to that on a personal basis because I witnessed that firsthand in Saudi Arabia. There were workers from countries like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and other places like that that the people thought that they could earn more money by going to a country like Saudi Arabia and sending money home to their families. But what happened a lot of times would be that the employers would take advantage of them and because of the laws in Saudi Arabia could withhold their passport from them and then those workers would not be allowed to leave the country without their passport, which would be in the possession of their employers. So I would just say like that's a very real sense of modern day slavery where these people are going to work in a foreign country and then without their control, they are being held hostage in that country. Right. So even though you can, the employer could make the argument that it's a normal sort of working relationship, it's actually not. That's a modern form of slavery. Then on a slightly less extreme example, I will again speak from my perspective of the garment industry, but there's a lot of situations where the working conditions, so even though workers are getting paid, the wages are extremely low and the working conditions are horrible. Workers have a certain quota that they have to meet that's completely unrealistic. In a lot of places in developing countries, you'll have areas of the city that are restricted for manufacturing. 
So for example, in, in China, you'll have factories that are so big, the complexes are so big that it's essentially a city on its own. They live there, they work there, they eat there, they sleep there. And so the fact that they're getting paid minimally, I wouldn't say that they're trapped, but they don't have a lot of opportunity to leave. The fact that they live and work in the same place can allow their employer to demand them to work longer hours. In the case of the Rana Plaza factory collapse, one of the reasons why the building collapsed in the first place is that an extra floor was added without a permit and a lot of steps were skipped to save money. So lack of regulation on that piece. And then some of the doors in the on the floors that had the garment factories were locked and workers couldn't get out. You know, so you have those types of workplace environments that are not conducive to safety at all. Lack of fire extinguishers, doors being closed, locked, that sort of thing. But for me, that's my biggest issue is the fact that slavery and exploitation still exists in the world today, you know, in the 21st century. And the fact that exploitation is not an uncommon thing in global supply chains and that that touches so many of the industries that produce the products that we buy. I do agree with you that there are oppressive conditions in places like factories in China and stuff like that. I do very much want them to have higher working standards and have better working conditions. But just to play devil's advocate, I'm thinking of the parable where you had the workers get hired throughout the day and they were each hired for a pence who were hired yeah. at different times throughout the day and they're each hired and they agree to the same one unit of wage for the day. And then when it comes to getting paid at the end of the day, the people that worked only one hour get paid the day's wage and that mm -hmm. makes the other people really happy, but then they only get the day's wage that they agreed yeah. to in the beginning. The point that I'm making is they all agreed to the working conditions and they accepted it. So... To me, the big differentiation I would make between, let's say, slavery and indentured servitude in a modern context, I would qualify the passport theft as an example of slavery because you change the terms. The laborers never agreed to that. Whereas sure. a factory worker in China who gets everything that they expected, it's just very oppressive. I would consider sure. that more oppressive employment, that it would be nice if it was a lot, lot better. But that is a different end of the spectrum than the slavery conditions of the terms were changed unfairly. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And I was trying to give a couple different scenarios. So it is all along the spectrum. There's different aspects or elements of slavery and exploitation. So I agree that those are two very different situations. I don't think that it's appropriate to compare low wages or even poor working conditions with actually being a slave and not having the freedom to make decisions about your life. But I also don't think that it's okay that people are forced to work in miserable, unsafe, exploitive conditions. How about this? Are you aware of modern-day examples of indentured servitude? Like, the example that I always heard in history classes was people who wanted to come to America but weren't wealthy enough to afford it, that uh -huh. they agreed to, I guess, the shipping company or the boat yeah. companies or whoever. They said, okay, 
if you will take me over to America, I will work for you for like four years or five years or something. <laughs> yeah. Are there forms of that existing now? Yeah. So I haven't done a lot of research on it, but I've definitely, I've read some articles. I've heard some stories. I've even listened to some podcasts where that is the reality of people who are coming over here for economic opportunities. So whether they're coming over here and they're going to serve as a nanny or as a maid, and certainly I wouldn't say that that every situation where that's happening, I wouldn't consider that to be an exploitive situation, but I do think that there are situations where because they're coming over here, they don't know anyone here, they, they may not even speak English, they don't have any connections, they're basically, you know, trapped in this house, whoever, whichever family is employing them, I mean, they're going to dictate the living conditions that they have. So I think, yes, that is still happening even here in the U.S. Actually, have you seen Lethal Weapon 4? <laughs> I haven't. Is it good? Is it worth seeing? Well, they've had some Chinese, I don't know, mob people or whoever that uh -huh. had smuggled over a poor Chinese family. And yeah. they kind of had them in a slavery, uh, yeah. indentured servitude context right. in order for them to pay their way for getting imported into the U.S. Uh -huh. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of that is, is actually happening. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it is. Let alone in other countries like China. Right. Okay. Let me throw you a bit of a curveball. What do you think about this? The potential for automation to actually eliminate demand for slavery or oppressive labor conditions and, and employment and things like that. Because if a lot of low-skill labor can be the type of jobs that are replaced by automation, then the demand for that labor that is under oppressive conditions could be automated away. Interesting. So I'll preface my response by saying that I haven't done much research on this topic. But I would also say I don't think that your question is relevant in the context of actual slavery, because if you have a situation where someone's a slave, they're not getting paid. And so there's no cheaper option than having free labor. So sure, no sure. amount of automation would be cheaper than free. But in terms of technology and automation replacing jobs that are currently being done by low-skill workers. Well, this would fit more into the oppressive labor. Right, yeah. Labor. I definitely think that automation is going to become an increasingly significant aspect of global production. It creates the potential for greater efficiency at a lower cost, which is a good thing. So I do think it will bring about some positive outcomes, just kind of looking at industrialization and all of the technological advancements that came with that, that's led to significant growth rates in many developing countries. And you've seen that throughout the globalization process. And I would say if you have increased efficiency as a result of technology, that's going to lower prices, it's going to increase demand. So you can make the argument that, that that would create more jobs in other industries in the long run as demand increases. And I guess one example of that, and also just interesting fact, 
I did my master's in Manchester, England, and I studied industry and I studied globalization. And Manchester, England was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. So it was kind of cool being there and studying industrialization in the place where it started. I didn't know that. But, yeah. But the textile industry was actually the first industry to use modern production methods. And it started in Manchester, England, because the weather there is so horrible. It was so rainy and damp that they weren't able to manually manufacture fabric quick enough. And so they had to come up with innovative methods for creating greater efficiencies in, in the production process. And so, you know, obviously when that happened, it eliminated the manual labor that was previously required. But then if you look in the long run, the efficiencies, lower prices, created more demand. And so eventually that led to more jobs. So I definitely think that there's some positive, there can be some positive outcomes to automation. But then on the other hand, I think there's a lot of negative implications. And especially for the workers in developing countries, they don't have technical skills, they probably don't have an education, and therefore don't have a lot of economic opportunities, other than doing the type of routine, low-skill jobs that will probably be replaced by technology. So the obvious negative implication is that there's going to be people who lose their jobs to machines. I think that that's inevitable as you continue to automate different functions within a supply chain. And so I think that there's a danger that, that automation will undercut even the, the lowest cost labor in developing countries. I actually read a, a World Bank World Development Report, and the World Bank estimates that about two-thirds of all jobs in developing countries will likely be wiped out by automation, which is really, really scary to think about because, you know, these are the countries that are still in the early development phases of their economy. And these are the countries that are still struggling the most, where people are, are struggling to survive still. So to think about the fact that with the globalization process and, and with outsourcing, a lot of jobs that used to be done here in the US or used to be done in Europe have been outsourced to these developing countries, which has been a really positive thing for them. So now thinking about potentially taking away those jobs, I think will have a pretty negative impact. I read an article that interestingly was talking about how I think it was specifically in the case of India that they were looking at this possibility, but with increased automation, they're predicting that it'll replace middle skill jobs. So for example, machine operators or clerical workers, that those are the types of jobs that'll be replaced, but high skill, you know, highly technical jobs and really low skill jobs will not be replaced by technology. And so the argument that this article was making is basically it'll create even greater economic inequality because you're essentially could be getting rid of the middle class in a country. And so you're going to have more wealth and then more poverty. When you look at the U.S. and throughout the globalization process, you had the phenomenon of outsourcing and then like deindustrialization. So what did that look like in cities like Detroit, where you had an entire industry that was based there that all of a sudden was gone? You left a huge void in a place like Detroit that's still struggling today. Thinking about what would that look like in a city like Mumbai, where we've outsourced call centers 
And if at some point we're able to automate that where we no longer need all of those, I would say, relatively low skill or middle skill workers because we're able to automate those processes, what is that going to mean then for all of the thousands of people who have been involved in that industry and now there's no longer a job available for them? I think one of the tricky things to be thinking about how economics works and the labor impacts on a global scale is that it's very difficult to see how all the pieces fit together. Because yes, you can look on a very microscopic basis and say like, this poor coal town in West Virginia is dying because now we're not using coal. Or Detroit is really suffering because American auto industry is is not as strong as it once was. But at the same time, that's not looking at the absolute boom that's taking place in Chinese cities of all the Chinese wealth that's being produced. In an American context, you can say, okay, there's a loss there. Yeah. But on a global context, there's been a gain there. There's still a net positive gain there in terms of economic abundance and prosperity and growth and progress. Then when it comes to technological changes, I don't think anyone's crying over the spilt milk of the gold rush being over from like 1849. There's booms in economies and then there's busts and things grow and then the economy shifts and and goes in different directions. When they invented electricity, that put all the candle makers out of business. But did that end society as we know it? No, like that technology opened up new areas and new jobs that were never even known before that there was no demand for previously, but created new demand. We do seem to be at like a new crossroads because the degree of progress of technology with the potential of automation and AI seems to be so great that it could potentially automate everyone out of work, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And that is very difficult to think about how that's going to play out. But if history is any guide to that, there's always been a next step instead of putting everyone out of work, it creates new opportunities to progress even further. Maybe on a positive note, it just creates that further demand for education and the value of education. Yeah. I also wanted to respond to your comment about innovation and technology being used. If we're looking at a macro level, overall, it's creating net positive benefit to society as a whole. So I agree at a macro level that that's the case. But I think it's important to look not only at the macro, like global economy, but also at the micro level. Ultimately, I'm talking about these topics because I care about people's lives. And people's lives are very micro when you compare them to the global economy. But I think it's important, again, when we're talking about benefits, to think about who's benefiting and bringing up the important role that education is going to play if people who have lower skills and and little education are going to be losing their jobs. Well, these are probably the people who have a difficult time accessing education in the first place. So my concern would be it's easy to say, well, it's really important to emphasize education and all of those people should go and get an education. In a perfect world, the solution is that simple. But the reality is that People who are working in these types of jobs and these types of conditions, migrant workers who are traveling to other countries, they're probably not going to be able to go back to their country and get a college education. Many of the people that we're talking about don't even have high school educations. And so I guess my concern is 
if those are the people who are losing jobs and the new jobs that will be created as a result of increased technology and innovation are going to be more technical jobs that do require education and technical skill sets, are we going to continue to perpetuate the disparity between wealth and poverty because the people who are already wealthy are the people who have educations and can just continue to perpetuate wealth within their circle versus the people who are impoverished will continue to be so because they lack access to the basic social goods because of their their place in life and in the economy. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. That is a concern. Technology can create education inflation in terms of yeah. the labor force where you have to have more and more education to be a competitive worker, mm -hmm. to compete for a job. And so that does pose a problem for low-skilled labor in the global economy. And then that kind of raises the issue of why people are floating the idea of universal basic income to say, we should just pay out a small living subsistence to people across the board, mm -hmm. not for any work or anything. Yeah. And on the one hand, like, yes, there is some feeling like you're doing something good by giving people who don't have much money that helps them to survive. But the big problem I see with that is, first of all, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So giving people money that right. has to come from somewhere. Right. Exactly. That's the one problem. The second problem is incentive. Mm -hmm. Like if there's oppressive conditions that there's just like a glass ceiling that you can never get past to like make progress in life. That is a legitimate concern. So if people can never get an education, then they can never empower themselves to then achieve more and, and earn a better wage and increase their station in life. But if it's a matter of incentive, my concern with things like universal basic income is that you could be taking the incentive and drive away from people to be achieving more in life. They get indoctrinated into them that this is their station in life and that I've been destined for a life of poverty and low achievement, for lack of a better term. But if people are trying to help people of, of low income, for example, in the U.S., if people are getting welfare, there's a mm -hmm. lot of cases where instead of it helping them, it actually enslaves them to that welfare sure. because it takes away their drive and motivation to excel beyond that benefit of welfare and to achieve more because it's enough to make them content and not driven to go beyond that. And that would right. be I my major concern. Yeah. I agree with you from the incentives perspective, and I'm certainly not advocating for universal basic income. I don't think that the answer is to give things away. You know, I even see that in, in my work, working for an international development organization in that industry, in the international development aid industry, you've seen so many examples of millions and billions of dollars being given away and just completely wasted. And you're, like you said, you're not incentivizing people, you're not empowering people, you are giving things to people and you're disempowering them. So it's, it's not that they, they don't have a skill set and it's not that they don't have, you know, a mind. It's not that they're not intelligent, it's that they don't have opportunity. 
And so I think that's what we're talking about here. That's what I would advocate for is how do we create a more level playing field so that people have access to jobs that do provide fair wages. So I'm not saying that they shouldn't work for it. I absolutely think that people should work for the money that they make. But I'm also saying that, what is it on an animal farm? All animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I look at the world and I I look at society and I look at, you know, the economy and, and our education system and so many different systems. And on paper, there's equality across the board. But then when you look at the reality of the world, I mean, even looking, you know, within Oklahoma City, where I currently live, seeing that depending on where you're born, what side of the tracks you're born on, or, you know, what country you're born in, your access to economic opportunity, your access to education opportunities is going to be different. I would just love to see or love to find a way to create a more level playing field so that people at least have opportunity. I think that's what we're talking about here is is fair opportunity. Yeah. Like when you're looking at a supply chain, multinational corporations are at the top of the supply chain. And then you have workers at the bottom who are performing like the most basic jobs or functions. And most of the the profit in the supply chain is captured at the top and then trickles down. So you have your suppliers who are taking a chunk and then, you know, whoever else is kind of caught up in the supply chain taking their piece of the pie. And then at the bottom, you have the workers who are, are getting paid in many cases, really low wages. To mention or just give as an example. So in doing research on the garment industry in Bangladesh, I came across a number of infographics that really illustrate the distribution of costs and profits along the supply chain just of a t-shirt, for example. Just to give you an idea, so we're talking about a $14 t-shirt, the way that they broke down where the profits are captured, seven cents out of the $14 goes to a factory overhead, 18 cents goes to an agent, which I'm assuming would be like a supplier. 12 cents covers the cost of labor. Okay, so we're talking about workers in supply chains. 12 cents of a $14 t-shirt goes to labor. 58 cents is for factory margins. $1.03 is for freight insurance and duties. And then $3.69 covers materials and finishing. So the total cost of production for the retailer, their total cost is $5.67. And then they mark up the t-shirt price buy 60% and sell it for $14. I know that was a lot of numbers, but just to give you an idea of what am I talking about when I'm saying that the majority of the profit, a disproportionate amount of the profit, and I would argue an unfair amount of the profit is captured by corporations at the top. Meanwhile, workers are literally getting paid pennies to do the work that they're doing. And so I think that that really illustrates the extent of the disparity of profits captured along the supply chain. Yeah, so I I think that all of this conversation, all of the different things that we've been talking about really point to the complexity of the issue. I don't think that there's a fix-all solution. And what seems like a solution to the problem could actually create more problems in the future or create problems for different people. Yeah. So uh, one a solution for one little part of the economy in terms of a labor injustice or that or whatever 
might actually create some other problems somewhere else in the economy. Right, exactly. And bringing it back to talking about corporations, I think it's difficult to force a corporation not to want to maximize their profits. That's what businesses are built on. That's what the capitalist system is built on. And I I don't think that you can legislate morality. And I think that's where I see the role of Christians in business. If there were more Christians running global companies, more Christians involved in, you know, supply chain management, maybe they would be thinking about the things that we're talking about. And maybe those things would affect their manufacturing processes. And I know that doesn't solve the global issue, but I think the more that people who care about these issues can speak into the space, the more that these types of things will be considered. And I think the more that we'll be able to work towards finding solutions. Yeah, I think that just speaks to what you were just saying, that it's very difficult to legislate morals because even if you put in a law that says you have to do this, you know, a company may be able to find three other ways to get around that to right. do whatever it is that they were trying to do, but still right. abide by the law because their right. intentions are different. You know, their morals are different than whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish through the law. But if the morals are to a certain standard, then you don't even need the laws in the first place. Right. I mean, unfortunately, we don't we don't live in that ideal world. And so I do think that laws are necessary. Well, yeah, I, I'm I just can't. saying that, that this ties back into what I've said before, is that right. uh, it's even more so about a heart change than a legal change that I think that we need on the global level. Absolutely. That speaking to the, you know, the heart issue, I think at some point, you know, we really need to decide as a society, like, what are the things that we value? Do we value maximized profits more than we value people and, and relationships and society as a whole? That sort of deep thinking or deep reflection is really only going to happen when our hearts begin to change. But So this is super complicated because I think this speaks to the very nature of how an economy runs. But I think one of the issues that speaks to that issue is reducing the barriers to entry to entrepreneurship and formation of an enterprise. Because... If every individual can be owning their own company or owning their own labor and selling it, contracting it out to employers, as opposed to being in a master-servant relationship, which is what an employee really is, yeah. if you are your own independent contractor and you're contracting out your labor to employers, you're much more independent and truly in control of your own destiny, as opposed to the traditional employee relationship. But the barriers to entry in a lot of cases are so high to formation of businesses and the legal restrictions and taxation considerations that mm-hmm. it really disincentivizes the regular person from being an entrepreneur because it's yeah. very intimidating and there's so much red tape to get through that it discourages the regular person from being entrepreneurial. And so they say, okay, I'll work for an employer they take care of all that stuff, and then I just get my wage. But the downside to that is that they get a much lower wage than they may be potentially entitled to, given what their labor is, and the value that they create. So we've talked throughout the podcast about a lot of different topics, but I think bringing it back to 
us as individuals and as Christians, what does it mean for us to know these things and to be a believer and to be a consumer? And how do I apply this knowledge and this information and the convictions that I have in my consumption habits? So if this is something that is new for you listening to this, then I'd love to encourage you to just start somewhere. If you've never thought critically about your role as a consumer, maybe now's a good time to do that. It's been a journey for me and I'm I'm still learning and, and growing and being stretched every day, but I'm enjoying the process. I think that it can be overwhelming to think about the fact that nearly every industry and every product that you could possibly buy could potentially be tainted by some form of, of exploitation in a supply chain. The point of this podcast and of me sharing this information is definitely not to overwhelm you or to discourage you, but I think it's to inform you so that you can be aware of the realities of how things are produced and start to make informed decisions about products that you're buying. In addition to kind of doing research and figuring out really what else do you want to know about these topics? I would also encourage you to pray about it and see if this is something that the Lord wants you to engage in more. What are the resources that he's giving you and and how does he want you to use them? And is this an area of your life that he wants more access to? When I think about the kingdom of God, I see it as being all-encompassing. And, and when I think about what full redemption looks like, I'm convinced that it includes every aspect of society, even the economy. So if my call as a believer is to work towards expanding the kingdom of God in in my sphere of influence, then that means that I need to bring it to the marketplace and I, I need to bring it to the economy. And what are the ways that I can do that? Well, for me as a consumer, I can make more informed and intentional decisions about where I'm putting my money. So that's that's a decision that I'm trying to make on a daily basis and, and just continuing the journey of figuring out what does that look like for me. And I would just encourage all of you, if you're not on that journey, to get started and really think about what does it look like for you as a consumer to really bring your values into the the purchases that you're making. Yeah, I would say that's inspirational because it's very easy to be a passive consumer where you don't really think about what you're doing or what you're buying. You just buy whatever's convenient and what's available in front of you. To have to stop and think about where those products are coming from, what effect that is having throughout the global economy, throughout the global supply chains it starts to make you really think about the impact that you have as a consumer. So I would say that that is encouraging, but also there there's responsibility that comes with that. Yeah, definitely. And one other thing I would add, so I think in addition to using our money to make a difference, I think it's also important for us to use our voices. One area that that can be done in is is advocacy. So obviously, if this is a new topic for you, you're probably not going to jump in and start, you know, sending letters to congressmen and congresswomen, writing letters to companies. But if this is something that you've been engaged in or want to be engaged in, that's another area where you can potentially make a difference. I mentioned earlier that I think it's important for companies to know what consumers care about. One of the ways they know that is by seeing all of the profits that they're making. Money has a loud voice, but we also have a loud voice in terms of letting companies know that we care about 
their business practices and we care about them having transparent supply chains and that that's information that we want to be available. And I think the more pressure that we can put on them as consumers, the more that they'll start to listen and to prioritize the things that we're wanting to see. I don't think there's one right way to approach it, but I I do think the solution is going to require meaningful engagement from many different angles and from many different people. And if changing your consumption habits is one small way that you can contribute, then I I think that's a really great place to start. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end. Okay. (laughs) Once again, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show, and I've really enjoyed the discussion, Anna. Yeah, thanks so much. Me too. It's, it's been really great. All right. Catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast.